0: Hi, everyone. Just a quick note before we start the show. Our story this week contains some graphic descriptions of violence, so listener discretion is advised. Here's the show. Greetings, Ghost Family. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Sam Dingman. Today, you're going to meet Jill Chenault. And Jill is not to be trifled with. I realized this the first time I spoke to her.
1: And she said she was crying and, you know, scared. But she still didn't tell... Sam!
0: It turns out Jill was not yelling at me in this moment. Her dog is coincidentally also named Sam. But for the brief, terrifying instant that I thought she was yelling at me, I could sense this power in Jill. A few months back... Family Ghosts producers Verilyn Williams and Odelia Rubin went to visit Jill in Lansing, Michigan.
1: Oh. Hey, Sam! <laughs> oh. No jumping, okay, Sam. no jumping. All right, I, I see you. Come on, nice yeah. to meet you. <laughs> Hi, did you have a hard time finding it? Did no, it was very easy.
0: Verilyn and Odelia spent a few days listening to Jill tell some pretty wild family stories, many of which were disavowed by her mom, Cookie, who lives with her.
1: Do you remember that? (laughs) You think I'm going to admit
0: that? (laughs) Over the course of hours and hours of stories, Verilyn and Odelia experienced firsthand what I'd sensed through the phone that day. Jill radiates something. It's more than charm, more than a sharp wit, more than a way with words. It's something you can feel. She told stories about her college days at Oberlin, her adventures as an actor and a criminal defense attorney. But there's one incident in particular that really sets up the story Jill's going to tell you on the show today. It's from an audition she had once for a gig as a hand
1: model. And the direction from the casting director was, you're turning a desk calendar page, you're turning the pages of a desk calendar, and then you come across a spider and it scares you. And so I, I said, oh, okay. And so I had the camera rolling on my hands and I'm flipping the pages. And she told me, I'm gonna tell you when you get to the spider. So she said, now. And I went, and she said, no, <laughs> no, it scared you. And I said, yeah, that's why I killed it. And she said, no, no, you're just startled by the spider. And I, said, I was like, yeah. <laughs> So I killed it, I I killed the spider, it was on the, and she said, no, no, just look startled. You're not gonna kill it, you're just gonna, your hands will be startled because you've come across this spider. And that's, it's all, it's deep in here. It never occurred to me that if I come across something like that, that scares me, that I'll go, ah, I'm gonna kill it.
0: What Jill's talking about isn't fear. It's something else. From Panoply, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman, and this is episode four, A Spirit of Vengeance.
1: When I was young, we spent a lot of time at my great-grandma Bertha Virginia's house long after she was dead, 146 Jackson Street in Pontiac, Michigan. All family events that were big were celebrated or were mourned at that house. 146 was a modest house with brown shingles, but it wasn't small. The dining room was big enough to fit a table that seated 12 people when you put the leaves in it. The kids' tables were usually in the living room, and there was enough space in the living room for at least two kids' tables. At 146, even at the kids' tables, we always had fine white linen tablecloths, and we ate off real china and drank out of real crystal, and we ate with real silverware that needed to be polished. After dinner, when we were eating pound cake, we kids would beg my mom and her sister Aunt Betty to tell us the story about the crazy man from Mississippi. I was about seven or eight the first time I heard it. And my mother and Aunt Betty would first refuse, but we would beg, and then finally they would start the story. And they always started it with the same sentence. Austin Riddick was black as coal and mean as a snake. He was the letter writer for Coffeyville, Mississippi, for the whole town. And as such, he was privy to everybody's business. And the reason he was the letter writer was because he was the most literate person in town. So anybody, white or black, who needed something written for them or read to them, they had to go to Austin. They'd give him a little bit of change and ask him to read or write for them. He married my great-grandmother, Bertha Virginia Silas and shortly after they were married, she became pregnant and she had twins, nicknamed Buster and Buddy. Buster was my grandmother. After she had the kids, Austin decided that it was a good time to start beating her, and he continued to beat her through every pregnancy. She had Grandma Buster and Great Uncle Buddy, Great Aunt Maribel, Great Aunt Billy, and Great Aunt Hortense, who was the baby. He beat all of them except Hortense, when he raised his hand to hit her once when she was very, very young. She said, You better not ever hit me, you black son of a bitch. And he never did. Eventually, my great-grandmother Bertha Virginia decided that enough was enough, and she put him at the business end of the shotgun and invited him to leave their house. He left and went to live with his sister further in the Mississippi Delta. But he stayed in touch with her by writing letters, of course, because that's what he did. The letters that he wrote to her were threatening and ugly, and he would describe how he was going to kill her. He would say things like, I shall clasp my fingers around your throat and gently squeeze the life from you. In the letters that he wrote to their children, he chastised them for not appreciating gifts that he had sent them or money that he had sent them. In one letter, He tells Great Aunt Hortense that she wasn't sufficiently thankful to him for the shoes that he had sent her for her birthday, and that perhaps she should just stop acknowledging him altogether like her mother, that she should just act like he was never born, just like her mother had taught her to do. And at the time, I think she was six years old, maybe seven. It was ridiculous for him to send these hate letters, but he did it repeatedly for years. During the Great Migration, everybody moved up north, one at a time. And ultimately, Great-Grandma Bertha Virginia moved up north with Hortense. Great-Aunt Hortense finished high school in Pontiac rather than in Mississippi. Austin lost all of his money in the stock market in 1926 or 1927. Shortly after that, he realized that he was in dire straits financially, and he needed some help. So he took the train up to Pontiac, to 146 Jackson Street to ask for money from these kids that he had abused, this wife that he had abused and never divorced. The kids were now grown, but he said, I'm still your father, and you still have to help me. And they said no. He became enraged and started acting a fool. So they called Big Sam, who was my grandfather, married to Grandma Buster. And Big Sam was a county sheriff's deputy, so he had a pistol. He came to the house and tried to get Austin to calm down, but Austin didn't settle down. So Big Sam hauled him off to jail. He was charged with trespassing and disturbing the peace. And ultimately, this man, who was very proud, very intelligent, and had always done what you were supposed to do, worked in the post office, invested in the stock market, he ends up in jail for 30 days. When he got out of jail, Austin Riddick went straight back to 146 Jackson Street. He hid in the shed behind the house and waited until it got dark. Then he took off his shoes, broke into the house through a basement window, and he grabbed an ax from the basement and went upstairs to kill everybody in the house, specifically to kill his wife, Bertha Virginia, who he blamed for everything bad that had ever happened to him. They always told us that the only people in the house were great-grandma Bertha Virginia, great-aunt Maribel, and her two daughters, Vivian and Phyllis, who were babies. When they told us the story as kids, they always said great-aunt Hortense was the mean one. And it was a good thing Hortense wasn't there. She was in Chicago with your cousin Bernice. Don't you ever ride in a car with Bernice. I swear, I thought that was her last name until I was grown. Apparently, she was the driver in two fatal accidents, one that killed her mother and and one that killed a friend of hers, which is why whenever anybody mentions her name, they say, Cousin Bernice don't ever ride in a car with Bernice. Anyway, unbeknownst to Austin, great-grandma Bertha Virginia heard the glass break when he broke in through the basement. She jumped out a second-floor window and went from house to house in her night clothes trying to get help. And then the crazy man from Mississippi managed to get into the room where Great Aunt Maribel had barricaded herself with her two daughters, Vivian and Phyllis. And he struck her on the head with the blunt side of that axe. Probably thought he killed her. And then he hit Vivian and Phyllis while they were asleep in a crib. They were one year old and three years old at the time. He broke out Vivian's back and fractured Aunt Phyllis's skull. And because he thought he had killed everyone in the house, legend has it, he went into the backyard and stabbed himself repeatedly. And he died in that backyard. For me, this was just something my aunts and my mom told us to scare us and make us sit still. And then one day, when I was about 15, I'm embarrassed to say, it dawned on me that Austin had the same last name as Ann Hortense, Riddick. And that meant he was related to us somehow. When I asked my mom about it, she thought I was a little bit slow. She said, who the hell did you think I've been talking about? He was my grandfather and your great-grandfather. So I realized that those were my great-aunts. They survived this brutal attack. And our family continued living in 146 Jackson Street. That was the house where all of it took place. So I asked my mom, why would they stay in that house? Why would your grandmother, my great-grandmother stay in that house after such a terrible thing happened. I mean, that means every time you told us the story, the people that you were talking about were in the room with us and were sitting in the house where it happened. And we played in that yard. I've done cartwheels in that yard where he died. And my mother said, well, my grandmother said that she had cleaned too many white folks' toilets to let some crazy nigger drive her out of her house. And then my mother went back to eating her pound cake and ice cream. By the time I was 30, I was a criminal defense attorney, and I did a lot of trials. Assault, murder, drugs, and I had to learn a great deal about how someone might or might not be able to commit the crime that they were accused of. And I learned that it was very difficult to stab someone through the sternum, to pierce the diaphragm, that that would be difficult for someone to do with a knife, especially to a grown man. So that made me start to wonder about whether Austin could have stabbed himself repeatedly. I really wondered, wouldn't the first stab wound cause you to go into shock or cause you to be disabled and not have the strength to pull the knife out and then exert that same kind of force again to stab yourself a second time. And so, though I'd heard this story my whole life, it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I started to doubt that Austin Riddick had committed suicide. I asked my mother one day, do you really think he killed himself? Don't you think maybe they killed him when they found out what he had done to those babies? And my mother looked at me and said, don't you ever ask me that again. So I let it go.
0: Family Ghosts will continue in a moment.
1: We know there's a lot going on in the news. China is still struggling to contain the coronavirus. It has been a turbulent year in politics around the world. Smoke darkens the skies above Aleppo's countryside. This fire is burning out of control, and it's just
0: 25 miles from Canberra. Australia's but here's the thing. There are also a lot of compassionate people doing amazing things for others every day. How do you pay someone back who saved your life? I am so incredibly grateful that I need to pay it back to her, but also pay it forward to others. Hear those stories on
1: Kind World, a podcast about how acts of kindness can transform lives. That's Kind World. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.
0: Welcome back to Family Ghosts. Before the break, Jill told us how she grew up hearing the legend of Austin Riddick, and that as an adult, she started to develop questions about some key details in her mom's telling of the story. Let's get back to Jill.
1: By then, I was dating seriously, and I had learned that being a tough woman wasn't always attractive. But that was all I knew, because I was raised by these women. My mom raised us, but we were around her sisters and her aunts all the time. And we listened to them talk, and we saw how they carried themselves. Nobody fooled with them. And they had taught us to carry ourselves in a way that let people know, upon entrance into any room, that we were not to be trifled with. Our generation had a fairly idyllic childhood, in part because of these women. Not just family in general, but these women in particular. We were raised to be sididdy black people. Seriously, we were. Even Austin Riddick had a saying that he meant to make the family mantra. God made nothing finer than a Riddick. There were so many rules, and there still are. There are rules. Like, you don't clean house on a Sunday because that's the Sabbath. You're not supposed to clean your house on a Sunday. You do not. A lady does not curse in public. You just don't curse around people that you know, maybe. But you don't curse in public. You don't go outside in your nightclothes at all. And that's the reason I think I get so annoyed when I see people wearing, like, pajama pants in public. The rules have stayed with me. I'm horrified. Like, who raised you? Now, everybody that was bludgeoned in that house lived. Everybody. Austin Riddick was the only one who ended up dead. There were some severe injuries, But everyone else lived, and they went on to live really good lives. They were pushed to. Great-grandma Bertha Virginia worked in private family, not as a maid. My mother pointed out that there's a difference. In private family, you work for one family as long as you can, for as long as they'll have you, usually years, sometimes generations. A maid would just work for any old body. And my mom said that her grandmother, Bertha Virginia, would tell them, you're going to get your education so you don't have to do what I'm doing. And if that doesn't work out for you, if you can't for some reason, not don't want to, because don't want to was not an option. If you can't, then you go to Kalamazoo and pick berries. That was a seasonal migrant job that some people had. She'd say, you pick blueberries, strawberries, whatever you have got to pick. But again, that was just like if all else fails. Just don't do what I do for a living, because if you work in white folks' homes, she will never be satisfied with anything you do, and you'll spend most of your time running from him. We were also pushed to play the piano. All of us took lessons. They thought that everyone should know how to play a little bit. But in my mother's generation, Aunt Vivian was the anointed one. Bertha Virginia would get up at like 5 in the morning to sit with Aunt Vivian every day while she practiced piano before school. She was that devoted to making sure that Aunt Vivian practiced for a certain number of hours before school, and she would practice again after school. But the morning was the hardest time to get her to practice, because, I mean, the sun wasn't even up yet. And this was year-round. Aunt Vivian went on to get her undergraduate degree at Howard and her MFA at Juilliard. And that was just unheard of back then. I don't even know how they knew Juilliard existed. And that's not to be condescending, but, I mean, in Pontiac, Michigan, how the hell are you going to hear about Juilliard? maybe through school, I don't know. My mother graduated from high school when she was 15 and she was a 4.0 student. She studied education and went on to become a teacher. My mother is one of the smartest people I've ever met. She's 83 now and she still completes the Sunday New York Times crossword puzzle every week in ink. Competitiveness, like always wanting to win. I know I get that from my mother. When I was a little girl, if my mother taught me to play something, jacks, hopscotch, gin rummy, old maid, she would explain the rules, and we might have a practice game, but usually we didn't. And after she explained, she would then ask, are you ready to play now? And I'd say, yeah. And she would beat my socks off, didn't matter that I was her child. I remember Aunt Betty and Aunt Shirley would say, Cookie, why don't you just let her win? Just let her win once. And my mother would say, Life is not going to let them win. When they walk out of this house, when they walk out that door, nobody out there is going to let them win. So it's best for them to learn now to compete. And so I remember when I beat my mother at gin Rummy. I was 12 and she was pregnant with my younger sister and I finally won. And that was a big deal. I didn't beat her at Jack's until I was 13. Too old to still be trying to beat my mother at Jack's. But it was important to me. If you can beat her, then you are good. I always wanted to do my best. I've never accepted defeat unless I was truly beaten. I remember once there was this guy that I liked, Ken Smith. I was in high school, and he was gorgeous. He still probably is. I haven't seen him in a long time. But he was that good-looking. I'm sure he's aged well. He played tennis, and I played tennis. And he challenged me because he said no girl could beat him. Well, I thought, okay, this is an opportunity to kind of flirt with Ken Smith and see if he likes me. And Ken Smith initially was letting me win points and I got so angry. I was like, stop it, don't do that. If you're gonna beat me, beat me. I don't want you to let me win. You don't let me do anything. I decide whether I win. I'm deciding how well I do. So he started really playing and I started to win. And he threw his tennis racket at me from his side of the net to my side of the net. Just threw it. And I cussed him out within an inch of his life. And we never really got past that moment, even though we became friends. I bet you if I talked to him right now, he would still remember how angry he was that a girl was going to beat him at tennis. But I didn't care. And it was not something that I even thought about. Once we started playing, I realized, oh, he's cute, but I'm still gonna beat him. All the women in our family are competitive, but we're also known for being fiercely protective of those who need you to be. The one time that I was engaged, and I really thought I would get married, that relationship lasted about 15 minutes and ended in great part because he was unkind to an animal. My first job out of law school was at a firm in Chicago. Kenny, not to be confused with Ken Smith, was living in Virginia. We met, or became reacquainted, at a U of M reunion, a black student reunion at the University of Michigan. And the romance was kind of whirlwind, especially because he lived in one state and I lived in another, but we would fly back and forth. Once, we were visiting my family in Michigan. Our dog, our family dog, Muffin, who was a stray that I found at Oberlin, brought home, And convinced my parents to keep muffin was trying to get on my lap and she was really too big to be a lap dog but when she raised her front paws and was kind of on her hind legs leaning in to get on my lap kenny kicked her in the chest and i knew then this is never going to work and i took the ring off i gave it to my mother who witnessed the whole thing saw him kick the dog i brought kenny upstairs and i told him if you will kick a dog especially this dog i mean this is our dog She's a sweet little dog. If you kick her, you might kick a kid. And if you kick one of my kids that I've had with you, I have to kill you. So we don't need to get married. I thought I did the right thing in breaking it off, but I was very sad for a long, long time. I thought we could get back together if he got some counseling, but he didn't want to get any counseling. And ultimately, when I did bump into him on my way to the Michigan Bar Review class and tried to have a civil conversation with him, as people who have once been in love with each other should be able to do, he was obnoxious. And one thing led to another, and I ended up punching him in the face. And then I went to the hotel where my class was being taught, went to the ladies' room, splashed cold water on my face, and went to that class that my dad had paid a lot of money for,
0: Hello, ghost family. Jill's story will continue in just a moment. But first, I wanted to let you know about another great podcast that we think you'll fall in love with. It's called By the Book, and it's hosted by fellow moth storyteller Jalenta Greenberg and Kristen Meinzer, a fellow member of what we at Panoply affectionately call the Famoply. On every episode of By the Book, Jalenta and Kristen spend a couple weeks living according to the principles of a different self-help book, like The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, the Secret, or one of my personal favorite episodes, How to Write an ebook in Less Than Seven to Fourteen Days that Will Make You Money Forever. As Jolenta and Kristen submit themselves to the rules of each book, they make audio diaries of their process, many of which feature their husbands, who they've also roped into the project, and the results are just as hilarious as you'd imagine, but also genuinely moving and thought-provoking. They make themselves vulnerable and ask themselves really hard questions about the values that underpin these books and the movements they inspire. Plus, the whole thing works because Jalenta and Kristen's friendship is real and not manufactured for the purpose of a podcast. So when you hear them alternately pressing each other's buttons and supporting each other through the existential crises their project sometimes creates, it's all totally honest and you can feel that when you listen. So check it out. Find By the Book in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we move on, I want to take a moment to tell you about another podcast you might enjoy. It's called Killer Knowledge from Parcast. If you're a fan of true crime and you want to put your skills to the test and be crowned an undisputed expert then you should definitely check out ParCast's new trivia podcast, Killer Knowledge. It's all the mystery and suspense you've come to expect from ParCast, now in a fast-paced, interactive format. Every Tuesday, two competitors go head-to-head to to correctly answer multiple-choice true crime questions. Whoever gains the most points after 20 questions wins. Each episode dives deep into a different, shocking topic from history, such as the Manson family. Jimmy Hoffa, and even the Jonestown Massacre. With each question and answer comes additional content surrounding the event, enlightening even the most knowledgeable true crime lover. You can play by yourself, challenge your friends, and prove your prowess by sharing your results with Parcast on social media. You never know, you might even find yourself in the hot seat one day. Follow Killer Knowledge, free on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And check out more ParCast shows on Spotify by searching for ParCast in the Spotify search bar. Or go to Spotify.com slash ParCast.
1: When I was in my 30s and began a solo practice in Detroit... I finally worked up the nerve to try to get more information about Austin Riddick. So I went to the Oakland County clerk's office, and I had them pull his death certificate. It didn't say anything about stabbing or being stabbed. In the space marked Cause of Death, it said, Suicide by cutting throat with razor. So that means he didn't stab himself like they said he did. That much is wrong. And that reminded me of the fact that I had always heard that women from the South, they always carried a straight razor in their sock or in their purse or in their stocking. I had a good friend named Doris that I went to law school with. And the first time Doris came to spend a weekend at my parents' house with me, we were getting ready to go to the Lansing Mall, which was a teeny tiny mall. And we got to the car, and Doris said, Oh, wait a minute, I got to go back in the house. I forgot my razor. And my mother said, it's okay, honey, you can leave it here. I'll hang on to it for you. Because she said she didn't want Doris carrying a straight razor. Well, Doris's people were from Mississippi, too. So we were always joking about, you know, don't make me cut you, or careful, she'll cut you, or something like that. So I started to suspect Austin Riddick was done in by my great grandma Bertha Virginia. Then my niece Taylor was born. There were two things that I really gleaned from Taylor's birth immediately. First of all, how much I loved her. The first time I held her, I was like, oh, she owns me. If she said, if you set your hair on fire, that would make me laugh, I would set my hair on fire. I thought, well, if I love her this much, imagine how much my parents must have loved me when I was a baby. Secondly, I saw how much my mother loved Taylor, and my father, and how they would crawl over ground glass to save her if something had ever happened to her. I remember one instance in particular. Gary, Taylor's dad, and Stephanie, my sister, Taylor's mom, were living at the house with my parents. And Gary wasn't working. He'd lost his job. My mother was going someplace, and when she left, Taylor was in her bouncy seat, and she had a wet diaper. My mother just checked it, and she told Gary, "'This baby needs to be changed.'" I'm getting ready to run to Myers or wherever she was going. I was living in Detroit at the time, so my mother told me this over the phone. She said that when she came back, that baby was still sitting there in that pissy diaper. She said, and I told him, I will do you in if this ever happens again. And he said to my mom, I'm just trying to let her know who's in charge. She can't just cry and get her way. And my mother said to me, I will kill that son of a bitch. I'll kill him dead if he ever does anything like that to that baby again. And I thought, whoa, she doesn't cuss that much, but she was pretty hot. And she talked about it at length, about how I must have been gone 30 minutes, and she's in a wet diaper, and all he's got to do is get his ass up and change her diaper. The diapers were right there. He's sitting there watching TV. I mean, she was really upset. And after that, I asked my mother, now that you're a grandmother yourself, don't you think that when your grandmother saw that Austin Riddick had hit her grandbabies with an axe and that they probably looked like they were dead. Don't you think that she killed him? My mother was silent. Then she said, All I knew was what they told us. This happened before I was born. My grandmother was a very sweet person. A part of me really wanted it to be her, my great-grandmother because she was brutalized more than anybody else in the family. He started beating her before he beat anybody else. And it just seemed like like that would be almost poetic justice for her to be the one to take him out. But my mother kept insisting that her grandmother was a very sweet person and very gentle, and that she doubted that she would have done something like that. We knew that he hit Aunt Maribel in the head with that axe because she bore the scars from it. And we knew that his wife, great-grandma Bertha Virginia, had run from the house to try to find somebody to help her. So that really only left Aunt Hortense. And the fact that they had always said that she was in Chicago. They never say where anybody else was, but they always specifically said Great Aunt Hortense was someplace else. It just sounded too much like the alibi witnesses that my clients would try to get me to put on the stand, who would say, Oh no, I remember specifically that he was with me because we were watching Wheel of Fortune. Okay, who the hell remembers that much detail? If it's something that you do every day in particular, you might not know who was with you on one day versus another. But my clients would always bring me these people that said, oh, no, I remember he ordered the fish sandwich, and we went back to my house. We got to my house at 618, and I'd think, that's ridiculous. I am not calling that witness in court. I'm not putting a witness on the stand that I think is going to be so specific that they're not believable, that will make the jury hate you more and make them more likely to convict which is why most alibis don't work, because you're almost always with somebody that cares about you. So there's an inherent bias. They want to save you. Why did they always say that Great Aunt Hortense wasn't there? And they put her out of state. With Bernice, don't ever ride in a car with Bernice. I mean, she could have just been in Detroit. She could have been out on a date. They said she was kind of fast. But they put her all the way in another state. Every time they told the story, it was just too obvious that there was something about Hortense. A newspaper article I found really sealed it for me. I went to the Oakland County Courthouse again to go through microfiche. This is before the Internet had every newspaper in the world ever recorded. I had the month, May, and the year, 1927, for certain. I had his date of death, May 7th. So I was able to narrow it down a little bit, but it still took me hours. Eventually, I found a newspaper article that placed Hortense at 146 Jackson Street that night. It read, Negro comes here from Southern City, had planned violence. And it says, Guided by a spirit of vengeance, as expressed in his own letters, Austin J. Riddick, Negro, went directly to the room in which his wife, his daughter, Mrs. Scott, and her two children, Phyllis and Vivian, the latter 18 months old, and his youngest daughter, Hortense, 17, were sleeping. The article goes on to say that not only was Hortense in that house, but that she struggled mightily to fight Austin off. At that time, and even now, some people would argue, white folks didn't care about what black folks were doing to each other. It just wasn't worthy of news coverage. Why waste a couple of lines in the paper on Hortense being there and struggling with the axe unless it was true? So here is what I believe happened. Austin Riddick, black as coal and mean as a snake, returned to 146 the night he was released from jail, and he hid in the shed behind the house. He waited until it got dark. He took off his shoes and left them in the shed, and he went into the house through that basement window. When his wife, great-grandma Bertha Virginia, Heard him break the window to get into the house. She jumped out the second-floor window to go to get help. But first, she told Maribel to barricade herself in the bedroom with the children, with Vivian and Phyllis. Austin went upstairs. He managed to get into the room. He hit out Maribel in the head with that axe. He then went after Vivian and Phyllis and hit them with the axe. And this is where the rest of my family and I part company. Then he went after Hortense, who had warned him, You better not ever hit me, you black son of a bitch. Great-Aunt Hortense had also barricaded herself in a room, but he managed to get into that room. They struggled over the axe. Somehow, Aunt Hortense emerged without a mark on her, but Austin ends up dead in the backyard with his throat slit. My understanding now, my belief now, is that when he went after Great-Aunt Hortense, who was the meanest one of all of his children, She took a razor. I don't know whether she had it on her or whether she was able to grab it, and she killed him in the backyard. When her mother got back to the house with a neighbor, Minerva Johnson, they called her Nerve. They found him dead or dying in the backyard and Hortense at the scene with a razor. There was a time when I was sexually assaulted by someone I knew who I think put something in my drink when we were at a bar. It was a few years after I had moved back to Detroit and I was in my mid-30s. I started to feel sick and he said, well, let me make sure you get home safely. I'll follow you in my car to make sure that you get home safely. And if the police stop you, I'll be there. The next thing I remember is waking up on my sofa in my living room the next morning, bleeding vaginally with my clothing torn. And I was very, very upset for weeks. Well, the first thing I did was go to the doctor. And it turned out that my gynecologist had a nephew who was this guy's roommate in college. And the roommate, the nephew, said this kid and some other kids who had a little bit of money had an apartment off campus where they would take girls and have sex with them even if the girls were a little bit reluctant, was how the nephew put it. And his uncle, my gynecologist told him, you don't need to be around him, you don't need to be his roommate, you need to disassociate yourself from him entirely. And so when I told my gynecologist what this guy did to me, that this is why I'm here, he said, oh, I definitely can see that. And I think you should press charges and your cervix is bruised. But I really wrestled with it, and I couldn't figure out what I was going to do. I came home to see my family just because I didn't want to be alone, and I couldn't bring myself to tell them exactly what had happened. But my mother could tell that something really bad had happened to me. So when I went back to Detroit and talked to her on the phone a few times, she kept saying, You'll tell me when you're ready to tell me. I know something is wrong. And I finally told her. And I told her that I didn't think we had enough evidence for him to be charged, let alone convicted. And maybe two days later, maybe even the next day, my mother, who was still teaching first grade and baking cookies and everything, she called me and she said, You're a big girl. You're an athlete. I know you like that aluminum bat. Aren't you like the designated hitter or something on your softball team? You're the only one that's allowed to hit the ball over the fence, right? And I said, Yeah. And she said, You get that bat and you go deal with him. And you tell him that your mother said that it's okay for you to beat his ass with that bat. And I went after him. I have several friends who are truly ride or die, like me. But that night I only went to one of them. I was on my way to an acting class and I stopped by her house. She had a new boyfriend, really nice guy, and we all thought this might be it. I thought he was out of earshot when I told her, we got to go do something. We got to make a run later on after I get out of this class. We got to wait till after dark. Can you come with me? And she said, yeah. I mean, you just, I mean, just the hoodies and, and stuff like usual. And I said, yeah. But there really was no usual. I still don't know why she said that because we had never, not that I recall, we had never done anything quite like this before. But the new boyfriend overheard us and said, what are you going to do? what do you mean hoodie? What are you talking about? And we both told him, look, you don't want anything to do with this, and we don't want you to have anything to do with this. And He said, well, I'm scared. I mean, it sounds like this could be ugly. And I told him, no, I think I got it. I think, I think we got it. But he was insistent, and he wanted to protect her, you know, new love. So the deal that we reached was she would put on the black hoodie and her boots, and if they had steel toes, that was great. And he would go with us to confront this guy, but he would stay out of it. She would stay out of it, too, unless I needed help. And so we rode out. I had my bat, and I went to the club that this guy owned. I had my friends park at the end of an alley and just sit in the boyfriend's SUV. I had hidden the bat next to a dumpster, and I went inside to get the guy. And he was so stupid that he immediately came with me. He said, yeah, I've been meaning to talk to you, too. He was upset because I'd already accused him face to face. And said to him, you know I know what you did, and that's fucked up. And he insisted, no, no, it was consensual. It was consensual. So when I went and got him, I thought he would at least have enough sense to give me some trouble about following me outside into an alley. But he didn't. He came outside with me, and I led him to that alley, and I led him to the dumpster. I picked up that bat, and I told him, this is what I'm getting ready to do. And my mother told me that this is okay. And you know what? I think my mother's a wise woman. I think she's absolutely right. Anybody would understand why I'm about to beat your ass with this bat. And he burst into tears, which was not what I expected. Before, he had all this bravado. But he burst into tears, sat down on the curb, and sobbed and was saying, you know I've always respected you so much. I've always looked up to you. I can't believe that you think I would do that. I would never do that. If there was a misunderstanding, I'm sorry, but never would I do that, never. And he just kept crying. And he said, see those people in that SUV down there? They'll see you if you hit me with that bat. And I said, those people are with me. That's how serious I am about fucking you up. They're only gonna get out of that car if I ask for help. And I don't think I need any help whooping your ass. And he just kept crying. And finally I decided, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't. And I told him, you know, if you just sit here crying like a little bitch, maybe it would be better for me to tell you this. From now on, if you see me any place in public, you leave. If something bad happens to your dog, your house, your brother, your mother, your father, you think that it was me. Anything bad happens to anything that's important to you, you think of me. But first and foremost, I don't want to see you. I don't want you to speak my name. We're done. We're done. And for about two years, that's exactly what happened. Every time I went out someplace, if he was there, he left. So I understand why Hortense and all the women in my family made the choices that they did. What else were they supposed to do? Sometimes there are no good choices. So I didn't do it. I didn't beat him. But I made him live in fear that I might. I just don't think she
0: and I just don't think she would I don't think she has that kind of personality even though she probably loved those girls she would Family Ghosts is hosted and produced by me, Sam Dingman, with Verilyn Williams, Odelia Rubin, and Jason DeLeon. Our story editor is Michaela Bly. Our show features original music by Luis Guerra, and our show art is by Paul Glenkler. Our managing producer is Mia Lobel, and Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Special thanks to Jennifer Trowbridge, Drew Henderson at WKARFM, Lily Tyson, and Satori Shakur at the Secret Society of Twisted Storytellers who connected us with Jill. Find more great stories at twistedtellers.org Find more of our show on Twitter and Instagram at famgoshow. That's F-A-M-G-H-O show. To join our mailing list, or just to say hello, email us at familyghosts at panoply.fm That's it for this episode of Family Ghosts where every house is haunted. Next time on Family Ghosts. My earliest memories of my dad are waiting for him to come home. Mark grew up without a father. Raised without much in the way of guidance, he's forced to improvise. I developed a list of all the things I liked about men and wanted to be like mouth snarling loafers with no socks pressing down on the clutch of a standard transmission killing it in dance montages as an adult mark searches for meaning in the woods outside pittsburgh in a variety of hair salons on the beaches of chile and of course the inside of his own tortured head debower the mind debower the mind like father like son like hell next week on the show